Second Samuel 5 will be our text on Wednesday. Our text this morning is going to conclude Acts 21, picking, up, picking it up at 37, and we'll read all the way through 22:21 by the time we're done. Now, by way of reminder, last time we found Paul had reached the end of his itinerant ministry, or his uh, traveling ministry, and he was now going to spend the balance of his years on earth under some, some form of arrest or travel until he <coughs> finished his days. And he would give witness of the gospel before the political elite of his day in various cities and settings. Now, we used our time last time to remind ourselves of the similarities between Jesus and Stephen and Peter's experience and, of course, that of Paul because of their common stand for the truth in the face of opposition. And we titled our time to be like Jesus. And that's who we want to be like. Amen. Now, we made three observations from the parallels that we drew. And the first was doing God's will and obeying God's word will cause us to be viewed as evil. And we are being viewed as evil today. Just as Paul was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile beyond the court of the Gentiles in the allowable area on the temple grounds, on top of being accused of teaching all men everywhere to reject the law and that the temple grounds was not a valid place of worship. False accusations were leveled at Jesus. False accusations were leveled at Stephen. False accusations were leveled at Peter. (coughs) Excuse me. If we want to be like Jesus, we're not going to be loved by everybody. And we're not going to be received by everyone. And we will be, as Jesus was, despised and rejected by some people. Now, (coughs) I'm sorry. Uh, We are being called evil today because we believe the Bible's record on how many genders there are. There's a male and there's a... And that's the end of the list. Amen? I was blessed with the addition to my cough with the rib hurt thing this morning. You've been there and done that, right? But we will prevail. Now, called evil today for believing marriage is between one man and one woman. And we're being called evil today because we believe that the word of God is just that. And being called evil puts us in some pretty exclusive company, including that of Jesus. Now, we also noted that to be like Jesus will never put us in the majority. <coughs> my gosh. And then I spilled my water as a bonus this morning, so. Oh, Lord, help <clears throat> Paul said in 2 Timothy four sixteen to 18, At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against him, as we read this a couple of weeks ago, but the Lord stood with me. He's standing with me now. He's with you now. Amen? Amen. So that the message might be preached fully through me, that all Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work, including this cough. And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, 
There was somebody else that was forsaken at their trial, and that was Jesus. Stephen also prayed for those stoning him, and he asked that what they were doing was not be charged against them. And these men were like Jesus, which reminded us of our third point last time, and that is that there's no greater aspiration in life than to be like Jesus. Now, that reminded me that some years ago, good catch up there on the sound guy, I like that. Some years ago, through our study of Nehemiah, we developed what we called the CCT Manifesto. And the Manifesto is simply a declaration of attention, intentions being either written or verbal. And some of you who were with us back then will remember, and I'll inform some of you and remind others, that our Manifesto says this, I am a child of God destined to make a difference. I will not doubt or fear in the face of adversity. I am committed to God's will for my life, no matter what opposition may come. I will praise God for every blessing and through every trial, even a cough, for he will never fail me. I will put God when, where, first, every day of my life, that I may hear him say, well done. Listen, putting God first every day of our lives is the best way to live. It's the most rewarding way to live. The fact is, it's a biblical way to live, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Listen, if Jesus said it, we can not only believe it, but we ought to do it. And when we aspire to be like Jesus, we will at times be like John the Baptist. We'll be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And we need to be ready to stand alone when necessary. Now, Revelation 2.13, the Lord said, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And boy, Satan has been active in these last days. Amen. He is seeking those whom he may devour. He yet roams today the earth like a roaring lion. And he only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And it was said that those who were putting Antipas to death pleaded with him because he was a good man. He was a righteous man. And they begged him to recant his faith and live. And their final plea was, Antipas, the whole world is against you. To which he replied, then I am against the whole world. Sometimes as a saint, we need to be ready to stand alone, or at least in limited numbers. Now, last time we found Paul being carried up two flights of stairs by the soldiers so that he wasn't killed into the Antonia fortress as the crowd yelled, away with him, away with him, even as they cried the same at Jesus' trial. Now, Unlike Jesus, Paul was not silent before his accusers. Paul wanted to address his accusers and requested to speak with his countrymen who were seeking his death. Now that leads to our title and topic this morning, and our title is simply A Good Testimony. And that's what Paul is going to give this morning, A Good Testimony. May the Lord bless whoever just turned on the air conditioner. Thank you, Jesus. Now... 
Our title and topic will be what constitutes a good testimony, but not in the sense of content. Not, boy, if this happened to you, you got a really good testimony. Well, what we're going to look at this morning is the construct of a testimony. And we would do well to consider what Paul does here as he gives us a format, if you will, of his testimony where he does three things. One, he tells of his prior condition. Then he talks or speaks of his personal transformation. And then he declares his current commission. And this is how we'll divide up his bearing witness to the Jews who sought to kill him. So let's take a look at Paul's testimony as he begins with his prior condition or who he used to be. And we'll find that in Acts 21, 37 to 22, 5. So would you stand and read with me, please, picking up our text in Acts 21, 37 and reading down through 22, 5. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears witness and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And Lord, we thank you that we have this magnificent testimony of Paul as he again speaks to his beloved countrymen, And Lord, would you also give us wisdom when we engage those around us today who are lost and perishing. And Lord, help us in our understanding of our time and text together this morning that we too, Lord, would be bold in speaking out about what you've done in our our lives. Lord, recognizing that apart from you, we were perishing, but because of you, we have eternal life. And we thank you, Lord, for this time. And this morning, I pray you would uh, cause my cough to cease and that we would get through this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, the commander here was a man named Claudius Lysias, and he assumed Paul was the Egyptian who led a group of assassins, 4,000 in number. And Josephus would later write to this man that he would bring these assassins to the Mount of Olives. And he said to them, at my command, the walls of Jerusalem will fall down and we will overtake the Roman Empire. Now, obviously that didn't happen. Their efforts were unsuccessful. The men were driven away. Many of them were killed. But the Egyptian leader was never found. And the assumption was made by Claudius that this was the man. 
Yet when Paul spoke in Greek to him, he realized that he wasn't the Egyptian. But Paul tells him he's a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, not from some small insignificant town, but rather from a well-known city. And Claudius allows him to address his accusers. Now, Paul signals for the mob to be quiet. And they are silent. And then when he begins to speak to them in actually Aramaic, they are all the more silent. And he begins his testimony respectfully, addressing them as brethren and fathers or elders. And then he restates what he told Claudius about his own ethnicity and hometown. And then he adds that he was a student of the famed Gamaliel and was brought up under the law, and he was as zealous as they are toward God. Now, he says in verse 4 that he was once where they now are, in that he violently and radically opposed the spread of the Christian faith. And then he makes mention or calls witness of the elders and the high priest who would say that his testimony was true. Now, Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I did what? I persecuted the church of God. Now, this too, I think, is part of a good testimony, because if we compare what Paul said he was to what he said he is there in 1 Corinthians, listen, being humbled at your current blessings in light of your troubled past is a good way to approach talking to others about Jesus. Now, I'm sure some of us have heard, or most of us have heard someone share their testimony, and they talked about their past like they missed it. And hearing people talk about all that they gave up for Jesus, all that they used to have, the cars, the houses, the women, the song, all the party life, they gave it all up for Jesus. Listen, nobody ever gave up anything for Jesus except going to hell. That's what you give up when you come to Jesus, because coming to Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to anybody. Now, amen. Now, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul would write this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I'm glad he didn't stop there, but he said this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of God. Now, Paul doesn't say to the Jews, but such were some of you, but he says, I once was one of you. Now, this is where a good testimony begins. And our first component is this, and it's kind of a corny point, but it's not the first one you've ever heard here, but it makes a point. Listen this morning. Here's the first thing I want you to consider. The value of sharing our past is that it is the past. The value of sharing our past is that it is the past. Now, there was somebody that got very, very upset with me and said some negative things about me. Not the first time, won't be the last. Because I told them I didn't think they were a good candidate for heading up the epic ministry here at the church, which is about breaking free from addictions and other things that hold us down. 
Now, the reason I didn't think they were a good candidate is because they were constantly falling back into their old drug habits and they were a chain smoker to boot. So I told them, I don't think that their message on being free from addiction is going to resonate well with people who are trying to get free because their past and their present look too much alike. And they didn't like what I had to say, and they're not the head of the Epic Ministry and uh, chose to leave the church because of my horrible con, uh, condescending uh, belief that you ought to actually be free when you're telling other people how to get free. Somebody say, Amen. Now, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind to be prepared to suffer as well. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the what? Flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Now, the thing we need to know, first of all, is that the lust of men or the flesh is not the will of God. We're not to live for those things. And the contrast is made clear there by Peter. Now, I mentioned to you before, I'll bring it up and we'll talk about another subject that is uh, growing in our day that we need to address. And that is why the hyper-grace movement is so dangerous. It teaches that simply grace is all you need and repentance is not part of salvation. Now, we are saved by grace through faith. Now, according to them, your past can look just like your present, yet you're still saved and going to heaven. Now, there is a huge value in our past when it is truly our past. Because it establishes a contrast between who we used to be and who we are now in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't or shouldn't share your faith until you're sinless, because that means nobody would ever share their faith. It just means we need to do what Paul does here and share with the similarities between our past and those that we are sharing with. Now, for you and I, we need to remember in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone, say anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in 524, the same book, he would say, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its what? Passions and desires. Now, Paul could speak with authority on this subject of persecuting the church because it was his past. I can speak with authority on overcoming drugs and alcohol because it is my past and it has not infiltrated my present. And the value of sharing our past is that it is the past. So, having shared about his prior condition, Paul now begins to address his personal transformation in verses 6 through 13. So let's pick it up in 22.6 and read down to 13. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone about me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. 
And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him, or I received my sight. Now, as Paul gives his testimony, he begins with what's become somewhat cliche in our day, in that Paul very clearly saw the light. And he gives specifics concerning this encounter, including that those who were around him did see the light, but they didn't hear the voice or the conversation between Saul and Jesus. Now, at the exposure of Saul's sin in persecuting the church, he also revealed that when the church is persecuted, the head of the church is persecuted, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he responds with, what shall I do, Lord? Now, the word Lord means supreme authority. So at this point, during this testimony in front of the Jews, under arrest by Claudius Lysias, let me ask you this this morning. Was Paul's present radically different from his past? Absolutely. So he is giving record of his personal transformation. And the fact that he called Jesus Lord opens the door for you and I this morning to do a little bit of doctrinal housekeeping. Now, in Titus 1.4, Paul says to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Is he both things? Is he Savior and Lord? Now there's a teaching today that is a refutation of what is called Lordship Salvation. And Lordship Salvation is simply the belief that true salvation will always manifest itself in the form of repentance from sin. In other words, when Jesus is recognized and accepted as Savior, he is also submitted and surrendered to as Lord. That is why he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Why do you call me Lord, and yet you don't do the things that I say? And then he gave the illustration of the storm-battered house of one built on the rock and the other on the sand. Now, the opponents of what's called Lordship Salvation say that only accepting Christ as Savior is necessary for salvation. And to say you need to submit to him as Lord is actually teaching a works righteousness gospel. Now, their argument is that repentance, which means to change the mind, doesn't require any submission to Jesus as Lord in order to be saved, only a mental acknowledgement that Jesus is their Savior. Now, the doctrine of salvation is called soteriology, and this is a soteriological issue at the heart. But the fact is, in the testimony of Paul, he transitions from persecuting the Lord to submitting to the Lord at the very moment of his conversion. So, Saul comes from, or Paul, in our text, turns from being one who persecuted the church to one who submitted to the Lord 
instantaneously as the Lord became his Savior. Now in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul would later write, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, and then he describes it, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to what? This world, but be transformed. Paul's giving record of his own transformation in our text. By the renewing of your mind, which is going to result, obviously, in proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He would later write to the church in Thessaloniki in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. For this is the will of God, your what? Sanctification. You can go ahead and say it out loud. Your what? Sanctification. I heard a pastor bragging about the fact that he had never, ever used the word sanctification in any sermon because it's a Christianese word. I don't think that's something to brag about. I think that's something to be ashamed of because it's in the Bible. Amen. And then he talks about sanctification or illustrates at least what it looks like to a degree that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel or maintain self-control in sanctification and honor. Not in passion or of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, people who know God ought to live differently than people who don't know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter or teach contrary to that. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Now listen close. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. Now, apparently, Paul was under the impression that proving the good and acceptable and perfect will of God included sanctified living or being set apart from your former actions and self. Now, here's why this is a crucial component of a good testimony or formatting how we reach out to others. Because here's a truth for you this morning. Listen, people may reject the inspiration of Scripture, but they cannot deny a changed life. People may reject the inspiration of Scripture, but they cannot deny a changed life. You know, it's kind of funny. We've been trying to uh, get the word out about proximity as we do every year. And it used to be years ago, you know, when you wanted to get out to the local area, you'd run a couple of radio ads and get people aware of the event that's going on. And now that's kind of been replaced with social media. And boy, I tell you, I have never seen so many ugly, nasty, hateful comments on anything on social media, on any of our uh, various pages as the uh, proximity conference advertisement. And somebody said, oh, so we're supposed to believe that Adam and Eve, who had three sons, is how we now got to some seven billion people on the face of the earth. And I'm thinking, that might be the stupidest thing I've ever read on social media. I mean, do the math. Well, first of all, read the Bible. They didn't just have three sons. They had other sons and daughters as well. And the fact is, yeah, over the course of however many thousands of years we've been on this giant dirt clod, it's pretty easy to see that if you begin to multiply, even as we saw within a a quarter of a century, our population jumped from six to seven billion. 
Yeah, it's entirely possible that all of us came from a common ancestor, and that being Adam and Eve. And therefore, people today, they reject the inspiration of Scripture. They reject the record of the gospel. They reject the words of Jesus. They reject the Old Testament stories. But the fact is, they can't argue when you're radically different than you used to be. Now, this is why Paul started with his past. So he could establish his present transformation as proof that he was within the good and acceptable and perfect will of God and submitting to Christ as Lord by accepting him as Savior. Now, believing you must sit, uh, submit to Christ as Lord if you're truly saved isn't adding to the blood of Christ as the lone necessary element for saving your soul. It's evidence that the blood of Christ has saved your soul because whomever he saved he transforms. Now, Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 also says, pursue peace with all people you like. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will what? See the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone, now listen to this phrase, lest anyone fall short of the what? The grace, the Greek word charis, of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many people, uh, many become defiled. Now, I need to remind you of the definition of the New Testament word grace. Now, we've all heard the uh, Pastor Chuck has a wonderful book, Why Grace Changes Everything. We've all heard him and many, many others down through the years talk about grace being unmerited favor, and the Hebrew word does indeed mean that. It means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. And that's what Noah found when he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God stooped to inferior Noah in kindness and told him how to rise up above the coming wrath that was going to happen to the world. Now, the New Testament word is different. In the Hebrew, it's Cain, C-H-E-N-E. In the Greek, it is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And the definition of charis, the translation is grace or graciousness. But the definition of charis is divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. In other words, when God's grace impacts your heart, it's going to change your outward activity or your life. So think about this. If grace is strictly unmerited favor, how can you fall short of unmerited favor? You got to be really bad to fall short of unmerited favor, right? No, that's why I think it's important we recognize what grace is actually defined as. Now, Paul says to the Jews from Ephesus, I once thought like you. Then I met Jesus. I surrendered to him as my Lord, and he changed my course of thought and direction in life. Now, one last thing. Paul incorporates Ananias in his personal transformation testimony as a credible, well-respected witness of his moment of conversion, which reminds us that Christianity is not a secret society. It is something that we ought to be vocal and visible in. Now, others ought to see the change, and others ought to bear witness, even if they don't believe the same things you do concerning the Bible. Uh, Some years ago, a guy I'd known since I was a teenager, his dad died. And I had gone to the funeral at the church I was raised in. And when we were all going by and greeting the family, I came to my friend's mom 
And I told her I was praying for her. And she immediately said without hesitation, that sure sounds funny coming from you. And the reason she said that was because of the negative influence I had had on her son. I was not doing well in my teenage years and had led him into some behaviors that after 25 years she had not forgotten. But neither could she deny that there was something different about me, even if the words I spoke sounded funny to her because of the mouth that they came from. And listen, Paul gave a good testimony about his prior position, followed by his details concerning his personal transformation. And so let's now look at Paul's mention of his divine commission that resulted from his transformation from his prior condition. So let's pick it up in verse 14 and continue uh, on down to verse 21. Then he said, the God of our fathers, Ananias speaking, has chosen that chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he, Jesus, said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Now, a little bit of housekeeping before we dig into this last section. In Mark 1, 4 to 5, we're told John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of what? Repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their Sins. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? First John 1 John 1.9. Now, Ananias was not saying that baptism actually washes away sins. The baptism of John was symbolic just as baptism is symbolic today. It represented a turning from your sin and walking in righteousness. What can wash away our sins? <laughs> Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now... Ananias announces to Paul that God had chosen him. First, that he should know his will. Second, that he will be qualified as an apostle because he's going to see the just one, speaking of Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth. Now, we find evidence of the fulfillment of these things in the New Testament and these uh, couple of sets of verses that we'll read this morning, also elsewhere. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8 Paul says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. After that, he was, what's the next word? Seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the presence, but some have fallen asleep. So he gives testimony. Others had seen the resurrected Lord. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was what? Seen by who? 
by Paul, by me also, as one born out of due time. Now, therefore, he saw the just one. Also, we often look at this during communion. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till when? Till he comes. Jesus is coming again. Amen. Amen. Now, Paul says and gives an account of what happened at the Last Supper that he was not present at. And he received that and he heard this directly from the Lord. Now, I want to give you also a word of caution. I feel very strongly that this is part of my responsibility to you and to remind you and warn you regarding those today who claim to be apostles in the sense of Peter, James, and John and the others. Now, according to Scripture, an apostle must be one who has seen Jesus Christ in his resurrected form in their own eyes. That's why I wanted to highlight from 1 Corinthians 15, seen, 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 all these different groups. And then finally Paul saw him with his own eyes, saw the resurrected Lord. Now, we know from Hebrews 8.1 that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. And he is there today. When Stephen saw him, as uh, he looked up into the heavens as he was dying, he saw him standing in honor of Stephen's death to receive him into heaven. And he was indeed in that very place at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. That means anyone today who claims to be a capital A apostle or to hold the office of apostle is saying they have been to heaven and seen Jesus, which is not true. We know it's not true because John 3.13 says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who what? Came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, Paul shares of his experience in Jerusalem while praying in the temple and the instruction and warning he received from the Lord about the rejection of the Jews of his testimony concerning Jesus. Now then Paul does something that none of us have ever done, and he begins to question the Lord. I'm glad there's some honest ones in the room who are laughing along with me. He says, Lord, you know what? They know what I've done. They know my track record. They know how I persecuted the church and those who had faith in you. They know I imprisoned and beat your followers. And Paul says to the Lord, hey, listen, I'm the perfect guy to reach these people. And then the Lord says... Depart, for I will send you far away from here to the Gentiles. Now, a couple of things. One, we're told that after hearing this, the silent crowd wasn't silent anymore. 
but they listened to him until he brought up the Gentiles. It's interesting that they listened to his uh, testimony about his own transformation, even mentioning Jesus, even calling Jesus Lord. But as soon as he brings up the fact that the Lord was saving the Gentiles, they wanted nothing more to do with him. Thank the Lord he's still saving Gentiles and Jews today. Amen. Now, also it's kind of curious that the Lord first says, make haste or get everything together and get out of here. And then Paul says, oh, you know, Lord, I'd be the right guy for this. And then the Lord doesn't say make haste. He just says, get out of here. He says, depart, go. Now, I wanted to highlight that for this reason. And that is our objections don't change the Lord's directives. Our objections don't change the Lord's directives. When he says something, if we say, well, I don't think I ought to do that, Lord, he's not going to come into agreement with us. He never says anything that's wrong. Hello? Everything that he says is true and well thought of. And besides, he has a perspective we don't have. He can see tomorrow. You and I don't know what's going to... We don't even know what we're going to have for lunch, most of us. So, now, this leads to our last truth concerning a good testimony. It's more of an exhortation than instruction. And it's just this. Listen this morning. Sharing your testimony is every Christian's calling. Sharing your testimony is every Christian's calling. Now, it is true that not every Christian is an evangelist in the classic sense of the word. And not every Christian is a pastor teacher. And there are some people, some Christians who are gifted in person to person witnessing or street witnessing. But listen now, that does not mean that any of us are exempt from telling other people what the Lord has done for us. Now, Acts 4, 4 or 18 to 20, we're told they called them the disciples, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of who? Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, they're saying, listen, after all that we heard him say, saw him do, all how he transformed us, we can't keep silent about this. And what led to the arrest and examination of Peter and John by the rulers, elders, and scribes, and the command not to teach in the name of Jesus, was that they had healed a man who lay at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3. And then Peter, to the chagrin of the Sadducees, taught the resurrection of Christ from the dead, stating that the same power that raised Christ from the dead made this lame man walk. And as a result of Peter's preaching, 5,000 people got saved, 5,000 men. Now, listen, Acts 4.13 says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were what? Uneducated and untrained men. They hadn't been to rabbinical school. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Now, this is our commission. In whatever form and wherever place it may be that the Lord directs us, that others may know that we have been with Jesus, or actually that Jesus is with us. Now, while not all of us have the same calling in the sense of gifting, we all have the same commission, and that is to give testimony of Jesus. Now, here's the thing, drawing from our second point. Listen, when people see your personal transformation, 
They're going to inquire as to what happened to you, even as the rulers, elders, and scribes asked Peter and John, by what power or what name have you done this? And then you can say, as Peter did, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that has changed me. And then you can say, in answer to the second part of the two-part question, what Peter answered them and said in Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other what? Name under heaven by which, uh, given among men, by which we must be saved. Listen, we, like the disciples, cannot keep silent about the things we have seen and heard and how the Lord has changed us. And we need to have a good testimony. We need to have a past that is actually the past. A transformation that is undeniable and irrefutable and a commission to tell others of what God has done and how to come to know Him. It's something we are all called to do. Now, one last thing. Are you ready for this this morning? We cannot offer as an excuse. I'm just not comfortable doing that. We cannot say that doesn't fit my personality. I'm just not the outgoing type. I'm an introvert. I have trouble uh, building relationships or whatever you may want to offer as an excuse. You can't offer as an excuse I'm not comfortable doing that because the the disciples weren't comfortable when they were arrested. I don't think they were comfortable when they were beaten for their testimony. I don't think Stephen was comfortable when he was being stoned, even though he prayed uh, for those who were killing him. Paul's multiple persecutions were not comfortable for him. And I don't think we need to go any further because I think the point has been made And the fact is, we need to tell people about Jesus because without Jesus, people are perishing. And people need to hear about the Lord. Now, our great commission, you can look it up in Matthew 28, 19 or Mark 16, 15, is to go to the world and preach the what? To who? To every creature. Now, obviously, that's going to take a lot of people to get that done. And it can't be limited to just those who have that type of engaging personality. It's going to require all of us to be participants and to go out and follow and actively pursue opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Is it always going to be comfortable? Is it ever going to be easy? No. Is it always going to be necessary? Again, it's God's chosen means to communicate to the world that he has sent into the world his only begotten son, to become the savior of the world and that through him all might be saved. Now that's where you say, amen. Amen. We need a good testimony. And we got a format from Paul as to how to put ours together. Let's make sure that our past is actually the past and that we're not walking in our former ways. And it's not that the Lord saves us because uh, we don't do this or do this, but he saves us and demonstrated his own love for us while we were yet sinners. But he turned us from darkness to light. He transforms us that we might prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then he commissions us to go tell others of his love and his power and his ability to save. And he gave that directive to everybody in this room and every other who calls on the name of the Lord. Amen. First of all, before we pray, I have to publicly give glory to God for stilling my cough 
during the 90% of the sermon. So would you pray that he does the same thing at second service as well? I know you will. God is good and he is faithful. Amen. Father, again, we are thankful for your word this morning. Thank you for the boldness of Paul. But Lord, on top of the boldness of Paul, we thank you for the love that Paul had first for you and then for those around him who were perishing. And Lord, may that be translated into our minds and hearts and manifest itself in our actions like never before from this day forward. And Lord, may we not hide behind our reasons and excuses, but Lord, may we not argue as Paul did with you momentarily, but you said go, so may we depart and look for those opportunities, whether it be simply living our Christian life out loud, so to speak, so others would inquire and to be bold in our faith or Lord, just to speak up and to tell those who may not be searching or inquiring of what happened to us, that there is the hope of heaven for all. So we thank you, Lord, for our time together this morning. And I want to thank you again for touching my voice. And I trust you'll get this frog out of my throat also. And uh, look forward to uh, what you're going to do through all of these, your dear servants, as they go to the world and preach the gospel. We thank you for our time. We give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen.